Hello and welcome to the Everyday Adventure Podcast. My name is Nikki Bass and I will be bringing you thoughts, ideas and stories from some incredible guests to hopefully inspire you to live more adventurously in your everyday lives. So today I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Tom Hewitt to the show. So Tom is the founder of Surfers Not Street Children, which is a charity he founded in the late 90s, um, working with street and at-risk children in Durban and are now in Mozambique as well. And the program has done some really incredible work with these children and introduced them to the joys of surfing as well. So they're... So I can connect with this charity on so many different levels and it's had some pretty high profile visitors and patrons as well, visited by the Queen, by Prince Harry, um, Tom's worked with the Pope in his Mozambique programme and it's also got this huge long line of surfing royalty and glitterati who've supported it as well. Um, and I've been following Tom's work for a while, so Obviously, it goes without saying that I'm really excited to be speaking to him. But his work has particular resonance for me because being born in Durban in apartheid era South Africa and someone who's grown up with Durban as a backdrop to my life, I'm really familiar both with its beauty and the wonders that is the Durban beachfront and the wonderful ways and sea but also with the real deprivation and the poverty uh, um, and the real inequality that also exists literally just behind those sort of front row flats as well. Um, So to see how Tom has combined his love of surfing and his passion for what it can do and and bring to people's lives in order to help these street children who have suffered in this way um, has been incredibly inspiring. And like I said, has, has connected with a real chord for me. So it's so thrilling to be able to speak to him firsthand to find out a little bit more about his inspiration for starting the charity, where the idea came from, um, and yeah, really what his plans for the future are as well. So thank you so much for agreeing to join me, Tom. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Oh, thanks for having me. So my first question's got to be, and I know this is quite a long story, but um, I think it is really worth telling and worth hearing from you, is is what inspired you to set up the charity in the first place? Where where did the motivation and idea come from? Yeah, the... Surface on Street Children was actually set up, I founded it in 1998, and it wasn't called Surface Not Street Children then, it was called the Durban Street Team. And it came out of, I'd been working with Street Children for a few years before then, uh, in a different part of the country, down in the Eastern Cape. And if you rewind a bit, I'd gone out to South Africa, I grew up in the UK, and I'd gone out at 18 on an anti-apartheid fact-finding trip, actually with my father. And he was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And while I was there, I was really incredibly inspired by um, kids. Sorry, it's my son. Sorry. (laughs) may have to edit that bit. No, that's Um, right. I'll probably just leave it. (laughs) Yeah, carry on. (laughs) Um, I'm at Croyd Beach, by the way, at the moment. Oh, lovely. uh, One of my favorite places as well. I can hear the seagulls (laughs) in the background as well. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd been out on this anti-apartheid. Um, trip and I'd met with incredible uh, activists throughout that time and and that really inspired me and it made me want to stay out there and and to be involved not because the the era was a particularly pleasant one I mean it was still the apartheid era Um, but because of the inspiration and the camaraderie I suppose of people and I think it's fair to say I mean given the the name of this show there was a sense of adventure in being alongside those people and I was mm-hmm. just a 
sort of very, very lowly volunteer. You can imagine, 18 years old from the UK. I mean, pretty useless in that <laughs> uh, situation. But fortunately, uh, you know, the people I was connected to there within the ANC um, humoured me and allowed me to, very graciously allowed me to sort of uh, lend a little hand. And um, and it was an incredible time and, and uh, quite a amazing time in terms of being a, a very tiny part of that change in history or at least witnessing it. Um, so, um, so of course I'm there at that time. And at the end of that trip, I went to Mozambique and at that time, Mozambique was in the midst of a civil war. And so we flew into Maputo and it was, you know, literally flying into a war zone and it was quite shocking for me as a young 18 year old, you know, hearing machine gun fire at night. And, um, you know, the, the, the city was pretty destroyed. Um, you know, there wasn't, the roads were completely potholed and there were bullet holes in the walls. And it's quite an amazing experience, quite shocking. And while I was there, we stayed with somebody who, um, we had dinner. I remember it really, really well. We had dinner with someone and, um, those days, you know, there wasn't sort of an abundance of food. It was a, you know, a really skinny chicken and cassava. I remember a lot of cassava. I love cassava actually. And, um, at the end of the meal, he said, Oh, I want to introduce you to some friends. And I was like, great. And we walked outside and he introduced me to what has to have been. I mean, I remember back, it must've been at least 70 or 80, maybe more children on the streets, literally outside his apartment block. And they were out there because this guy was kind of a beacon of hope for them and um, looked after them as much as he could. He didn't have somewhere for them to stay, but he made sure everyone had blankets and was fed. And I had never imagined that there was such thing as street children, as kids living on the streets. It just hadn't really crossed my radar. And if it had, I hadn't taken note of it because I was really shocked. Uh, it was extraordinary to me that children were living on the streets. And so when I went back into South Africa after that, I was asking around uh, people within uh, the ANC and, and others, you know, what's, what's happening now? What's happening with the street children? Of course, they were completely consumed with the bigger picture, which was the transformation of you know, movement from the old South African apartheid regime to the new South Africa. So inside that people didn't care, but they were like, um, I don't know what's, what's happening with the street kids. So I was, I said to people, well, how about if I, I get involved there? And I, and I think people were, people were very friendly. I just think they were like, yeah, whatever, you know, and again, from a caring perspective, but there was such big movements at play politically at the time and like I said I was an extremely small fish gosh and so how did it evolve from there then I mean to become because you know one thing that really struck me as well is how long you've been operating which I guess for a small charity you know ha having spoken to people who have set up and run charity there's so much work that goes into that and even getting it started and then to keep it going for that period of time I mean what what how did it then evolve into sort of I guess what it's become today well when I, I started working with street children in 1992, and that was before the end of apartheid, so I carried on mm. doing bits and bobs uh, outside of the issue of street children. I was a peace monitor at the first free and fair elections in South Africa in 94. But I really had sort of um, embraced this idea of, of working with street children. I worked at two really incredible programs at the time. And sort of to, to cut a long story short, um, but 1998 was when I decided to move up from uh, the Eastern Cape, where I had been 
based uh, to Durban. And the reason for going up there was because that was where that was kind of the hub. Durban was the hub of street children as a as an issue within uh, or as a phenomena within South Africa. And there are reasons for that as well. Um, kids would come down from Johannesburg or up from the Transkei uh, because you could live on the streets, at least uh, in terms of the climate, you could live on the streets in Durban all year round. And that's not the same in, in some of the other parts of South Africa. So it became this kind of melting pot. Kids would come from as far as Cape Town even sometimes. And I really wanted to be in the middle of where the problem was the worst. And we'd had quite a lot of impact on the, the city of East London in South Africa, uh, in the Eastern Cape. And so I wanted to go up to Durban and at first just work with local organizations. But it, but when I got there, I realized that there was actually quite a deficit there. And uh, not um, thinking for a moment that I had sort of the wherewithal to run an organization, I sort of launched myself headlong into starting an operation, you could, I suppose, call it, which was a, a, I rallied sort of four or five yeah, untrained outreach workers who basically just wanted to help street kids. You got to remember at the time, it was anarchy. And, and why I say anarchy, um, you had a welfare system that was uh, built for whites. And when the walls came down from apartheid, the system just burst at the seams. It could not cope with uh, the black population. It wasn't designed for the black population. And so you had a situation of anarchy. And, and actually, that was where we were quite successful at the beginning, was that um, we, we were able to navigate and that anarchy and set up something with integrity within that. Now, of course, if, if you bring it up to present day, we've professionalized and you know uh, trained workers, all of that. But at the time, that wasn't really available to us. And so it was kind of the, wanting to be in the middle of where the situation was worse at its worst was uh, how I ended up in Durban. And we just called our team the Durban street team at the time, literally just, we have one vehicle and we used to drive around the streets and just help out where we could. And within a couple of years, we'd formalized that into an organization. And uh, I was sort of reporting to um, people in the UK to try and rally support for this and little did I know at the time that this would become something vocational for me. Um, but I kind of fell in love with the idea of of being part of um, the new South Africa, even if it was in, in just a very small way. Mm. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, there's so many angles I could pick up on. I think what's really interesting, I think, as well, is that firstly that... <laughs> I, I love that your description of getting out there and going on an adventure, probably for most people, that would be probably at the extreme end of going on adventures, like you said, ending up sort of, yeah, with gunfire going on and, and you know, and working with some really, really challenging situations as well. And like you said, it, at a time which was pretty anarchic and uncertain for, for so many reasons, but also really exciting and, and full of possibility too. Um, and I guess the other thing I was just thinking is that, you know, nowadays there's quite a big movement around blue health and about how surfing can be so beneficial from a psychological perspective and, and can help build sort of resilience or, you know, help people develop and access a part themselves. But I'm guessing probably back then there was much less of a of a sort of research connection. So I was just wondering, I mean, did that did that sort of develop as a result of just of your own passion for surfing and bring the two together? What, what was it that sort of thought made you think, actually, this is, this is something that could really work? 
Back in those days, of course, the blue health thing literally didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, there was no, at the time, back in 1998, there was no organization that we knew of that was using surfing as a tool for positive good. And so mm. that has changed massively. So it was absolutely new. Interestingly enough, and because I spent quite a bit of time in Brazil um, throughout that time just visiting because they had some really interesting responses to the phenomena of street children, uh, I did learn that about the around about the same time that we started up with with the surfing, um, there was a program in one of the favelas in Rio that started as well. So, you know, certainly not trying to sort of claim we were the first, uh, but but just to say that it was such a different era. I mean, there are so many kind of surf therapy or blue health uh, programs now, which is great. It's fantastic. Fantastic. But back then it really was something kind of considered very um, extraordinary. And I worked with street kids um, for a long time before I even considered the idea of fusing surfing into the models. And partly that was because I loved surfing. I'd grown up surfing and I kind of didn't want to impose what I did on the kids and also, I suppose at that time, I felt that they might be more interested in things that were more, I, I wanted to be careful also not to impose my own sort of cultural uh, culture. And actually, it was something that uh, that I kind of learned a lesson with it, actually, because we had an array of programs back in 98. We had football, art, drama, music, um, and I brought surfing in as a program. So it was actually a girls program to start with um, because the boys had uh, they'd been a bit mean with the girls about um, playing soccer with them. And, and so we sat down with the girls and said, well, let's think of a program. Do you want to play soccer? Or do you want to? And in the end, they we, we had this idea to run a, a surfing program and we started it and it was, it was fun. But it kind of was just one of our programs and, and kind of fizzled a little bit. And actually, partly because um, our response to girls in the streets was um, was quite intense because of the dangers that they were facing at the time on the street. Mm. So we'd often take the kids out really fast. And so the pri- priority wasn't to get them surfing. The priority was to get them out yeah, of the streets. Course. So the one day um, I was actually surfing myself and I was surfing at uh, Durban's sort of premier surf spot called the New Pier. And I was sitting out out back, but it was a small day. So out back is right under the pier almost. And one of the kids was on the pier. And actually, this was before we started with the girls. But um, uh, this kid was called Tula. And Tula came running up the uh, up the pier. And he said, um, he said, Tom, I want to surf. And um, I hadn't, I knew he could swim because he was in our program. So um, I said, okay, jump off the pier. And he jumped off and I put his the leg rope on him. And I pushed him into the into the wave. And I couldn't see him because I'm behind the wave. But I heard him hooting all the way down. Oh, wow. And then he grabbed the board, ran up the sand, ran up the pier and wanted to go again. And it was kind of like a, um, a light bulb moment. And um, I suddenly realized, wow, this surfing's given me so much over the years. And um, so much joy, so much stoke. Uh, it's been a, a real release, a, an escape, uh, an adventure. Uh, you know, so many things and I kind of felt a bit bad that I hadn't thought that perhaps the kids would would like this and and so we said to them well you know do you want to do this program and again going back to the story of the girls mm-hmm. uh, we started the program with the girls and amazingly it became it kind of fizzled out at first and then we had a new crew of kids boys and girls that came in and it really became popular and this is back in in 98 and at the time 
there was no surfing program uh, for, for uh, where surfing was a tool for positive good. And we just found that it became such a strong program that it did a couple of things. One, it was an extremely useful tool, surfing was, in um, alongside mentorship and care for transforming the lives of street children. It just worked so well. And what I put that down to, perhaps, is that um, there's something about surfing whereby you are forced for the length of your ride to entirely live in the moment. Like there's no room for anything else, especially on a shortboard. You know, you're so consumed from beginning to end. And there's something absolutely incredible and, and maybe addictive about living in the moment. And it, you're forced to do it. And we found that that and the adrenaline and the stoke that that, that gave off just made that that was something that was more powerful than the pulls of the streets, which were primarily drugs and other street problems. And so we found that the fit was absolutely incredible. Um, so that was one thing that we were we were surprised at. And secondly, we realized that what the surfing did after a while was make a major change to Durban's racial demographics of surfing. So um, this was incredible because at the time, surfing was almost exclusively white. In the 90s, there were a handful of surfers, um, really nice guys who'd, um, who had started surfing, but they really had to be very careful to sort of act white. Mm. Um, and they would assimilate, to try really hard not to annoy anyone. And they were kind of sort of made to feel that, you know, you're there on the terms of those who are already there. They were really nice people. And some of them you know, made them really great friendships on the beach as well. But uh, that kind of fizzled a bit as well. And then this crew from Surfers Not Street Children came in at the, uh, at the beginning of 2000, because, you know, 1998, they were still learning. Mm. And then in the 2000s, they started getting good enough to surf the new pier well. And they were this new wave of black surfers. And it really did, um, you know, it's widely recognized to have changed the racial demographics and open surfing up to people of color. And interestingly enough, um, a similar thing has happened in the last four years. Um, and although there had been girls and boys involved in the program, it became very much a boy program. And that was because we'd got a lot of the girls out of the streets very quickly because uh, of the sense of urgency on that and, uh, and into care. And about five years ago, we realized that we really needed a more targeted program specifically for girls. And so we started um, a program called Girls Surf 2. And Girls Surf 2 was... Um, using the same model of fusing surfing with mentorship and, and care uh, run by our, our head social worker, a female social worker, South African social worker. And this program has also done the same thing. It's the first um, black girl crew of surfers in Durban. Now there have been a couple of black surf, uh, female surfers in the past um, youngsters, um, but similar to the nineties, there wasn't a crew. And this is the first girl, black girl crew. Um, in Durban um, that has really sort of become part of the the beachfront and part of the so the surfing community and um, they're surfing for KwaZulu-Natal sort of in contests and Amazing. on the, the the provincial team so it's really exciting uh, to see that type of change as well. That's incredible and I think you know again so many layers but there's often you know because I know one of the the things or one of the criticisms is often leveled when it comes to you know sports like surfing particularly which are 
particularly portrayed in the media as being very homogenous in terms of a culture. It's typically white, slim Mm. men women you know who fit this sort of image of what surfing would look like or should look like in people's minds and that actually to start dismantling those barriers and and to be you know accessing that when you know that's not being reflected back at you I think is so challenging but also to like you said to to interweave that sort of political change in a way of going look we're changing the demographic makeup out in that in the water and showing that that inclusion that possibility to other children as well who are out there um, you know, I can imagine that must be immensely powerful. And like you said, takes time as well. It has to be, you know, it's it's things that don't happen automatically, but that slowly. I was just thinking back. I remember going to beaches as a kid with my parents and then being segregated along the, the beachfront, that there were certain beaches that only were whites only. And I remember being horrified as a child because obviously being from having been brought up in England, that wasn't even something a consciousness and and to go so i think it's also something about that is such an immense change in a period of time that like you said has been so has gone from such a a difficult and challenging place to to where it is today and, and like you said there's still so much to do i mean i can i can only imagine there must have been so many challenges you faced over the last sort of 20 plus years with the charity um i was just wondering if there's been one particular challenge that that you've faced or that's really stuck with you but also that you're sort of really proud to have overcome i think the most difficult challenges are always within the scope of what we of who we work with is the fact that most of the kids come in with uh trauma yeah and often with addiction uh, if you took if there was no trauma and addiction with the kids it would be a lot easier it just makes it you know you know it's trauma is illogical you can't present a logical and rational way out of a situation and and expect that someone traumatized will just see it and say oh yeah that's a great idea i'll do that you know so that makes it uh, really challenging on the ground and that was always complicated and sometimes you know you can just say why is this child not you know seizing this opportunity you know why why can't they see it or and and that's why it's so obviously so important just working very closely rather than you know um you know telling them what to do you've got to give them the tools to work it out themselves um so that's that's on the ground probably the most um challenging thing and then of course um in terms of the actual charity itself there's 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 many uh frustrations i mean running charity is not easy uh anyone who says it is i'm I'm (laughs) like okay i don't know um i think the biggest thing we went through was in after the financial crash of 2008 2009 it was delayed in south africa because of the world cup and so we were kind of actually we were flying as a charity in in the sort of from about 2006 onwards through to about 2010 and then literally after the fifa world cup it was like an axe went across our funding and it all just went boom dried up and the most challenging the years I'd never want to relive is 2011 and 2012 because it was just fighting for the survival of the organization and making sure that we could continue to serve the kids and you know knowing that we'd started something pretty um, important in the kids' lives and because mm. yeah it was a fight and I would say it took probably um, in real terms or you know at least seven years and maybe the entire decade 
to to recover and rebuild is it actually is a long Gosh, long that's time a long time um that's not to say that incredible and, and wonderful things didn't happen during that time alongside the challenges um but that would be an era that we, we i wouldn't want to live again that uh, i wouldn't want to relive that and also uh, yeah with like with all of these things uh, there's a lot of things that that taught me uh in terms of how to run a charity and how to protect a charity and and uh, you know uh it coincided with the number of the numbers of street kids in between 2000 and 2010 were absolutely huge because the aids crisis uh, had been in full flow and was in full flow um at least for part of that and so the numbers of kids we were working with were just phenomenally large and then and we had scaled up for that and then as we got better at what we were doing and and certain dynamics changed um, and the numbers dropped a bit and we started looking at different um the kids that were not just on the streets and uh and and those that were at risk of street connectedness and stuff the dynamics changed and we hadn't really thought about that so these are all questions that we had to start asking ourselves of how to structure you know how to think about vision and growth and what, what, what do we really want to do do we just want to sort of start projects in loads of different cities and get bigger and bigger and we, we actually decided that we um we wanted to stay very durban orientated um and it was only after you know about five years after that that we we did venture into mozambique as well but it was a serious amount of uh discussion and and uh you know reflection as to whether we even wanted to go to another place because we felt so committed to the scenario in in Durban our goal obviously is that no child should have to live on the streets but what's the difference between a kid who lives on the streets and somebody who lives in one of these so-called shelters in downtown point in Durban you know potentially with a mother or I mean street life under a roof in those places mm. and we realized they had exactly the same needs and so we couldn't just say well we won't serve that person, but we will serve this one because they live on the streets. And so we realized that, wow, this is actually way bigger than we even realized. And, and that's why we we broadened to include um, children at risk of street connectedness as well. Gosh, I was guess I was just thinking about that process, because often I guess what people see is the sort of the end result. They, they come to the point at, or where you are now and go look at all these amazing things that you've achieved and you know and I think we often do that when we're looking at what other people have achieved through life as well and just that thing about like you said about that process that you you know that there are these highs or this sense of that you're really helping people and then another problem comes along and then you're having to sort of rework around that as well and that it's a, a sort of a no matter how how much you know there's always so much to learn in that as well um and I guess I'm just thinking that you know, there's the there must be the obvious benefits in terms of when you do see the children really thrive and emerge from your program, having really gained so much from it personally, and feel that they are in a safer and and better place. Um, but I guess just sort of maybe reflecting back to where you started with this, thinking what have been what have been the unexpected benefits that have come for you, the things that you never you know you never imagined when you went <laughs> where you were starting off. I suppose, I mean, it sounds slightly cliched, um, but I suppose I'd never realized uh, how much fun it would be working with the kids on the street. And it really has been. I really enjoy, uh, you know, 
I mean, obviously I'm not a social worker and I have great social workers at the program, but I really enjoy sort of going surfing with the kids and, um, and hanging out with them. It's really good fun. They are, they are mm. fantastic kids. And then, uh, our staff's absolutely amazing as well. So, um, so there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stoke that, that I've got out of it. And I didn't expect that. Um, I think, um, you know, we've had some extraordinary moments, um, with the kids, uh, I didn't realize that um, I think it took me a while to, to understand that given what the kids have been through, that an ordinary outcome is extraordinary in the lives of the kids. And I don't mean that in a condescending way in the slightest, but um, we've had a couple of incredible stories of kids who've sort of gone on and done pro surfing. And we have one kid finished 17th in the world. And that is extraordinary. Mm. But we've also had kids that have become coffee baristas and have worked in restaurants or surf shops or lifeguards or surf coaches or whatever it is. And all those um, ordinary stories are actually extraordinary when you think of the fact that they were standing by the traffic lights, sniffing glue and begging as seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds. And so that was quite a learning curve for me because, um, you know, um, dignity in the lives of the kids, um, I had to really understand what, how kids got their dignity once they were adults, what it was that really made them feel like they'd made it. And, um, and that was, that was interesting seeing, uh, kids that had the opportunity. Well, one kid who was uh, a professional surfer actually had the opportunity to travel the world and, and, um, and doing, you know, just had so many connections that he could have taken. And actually his dignity came from, being in his hometown, working in a surf shop and um, being a good surfer, you know, and I, I really kind of, it was a real learning moment for me because I, I realized it's not so much about what others can see in terms of his potential, but it's understanding where his, his needs lie and his or hers, um, you know, where their dignity will be found. Um, that was quite a learning curve. So there's loads of little life lessons that the, the kids have, have taught um over the years yeah that's wonderful is it that you you've learned so much from them as well and I was just thinking that bit about yeah there's probably so much we could learn around yeah where what is the thing that makes you feel whole and happy and yes exactly grounded exactly. versus what we think we should be achieving so so I mean you've achieved amazing things in the last sort of 20 plus years with the charity I mean what's next where what would you like you've alluded to it already but what would you like to develop further going forward well I think we really want to um, continue to develop our Durban program because although we are doing well on reducing the number of kids on the streets Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of hidden suffering um, particularly in the downtown urban part of of Durban, the point just behind the beachfront. That's an area that kind of gets missed out. It's not seen as a township. Uh, it's just seen as urban. And so it doesn't quite have the, the community programs and development that other areas would. So we're really committed to, to doing that. Our immediate concern is the fact that COVID has had a, a real effect on um, the kids and the families that we serve. Not so much the disease itself, uh, but the economic implications mm. of that. So a lot of the parents were working in the informal sector and there's no support for the informal sector and they lose their meager incomes. And so um, 
so for example what we've done is uh we had sort of an emergency uh response uh nutrition program for the kids that really needed them we had about 50 kids in there we've now got 200 plus in the program and that's just because of covid uh, and then the recent troubles in South Africa, that was re- it really highlighted yeah, how important yeah. that was when we were struggling to even get the food into the kids. And uh, it's quite incredible how people rallied around and helped us with that. So my immediate goal is we got to step up this program of support during COVID, knowing that even if the pandemic ended tomorrow, the economic um, repercussions are going to take some time so this is this is probably a two-year program and it was crazy because normally if we're starting a new program we'll plan it for like six months and make sure we've got everything ready but we literally had to have a a meeting in a in a week and say there's a problem what are we going to do we're going to do a new program oh my goodness you know it's like such (laughs) an undertaking financially so to make sure that that's fully funded is our is our absolute priority make sure the kids are are fully supported with um nutrition uh safe spaces and social workers throughout the pandemic period and the aftermath of the pandemic period is our primary concern at this stage um we also making sure that the Mozambique program is supported and in a similar way during this time. So, uh, and then I think that really is sort of the next couple of years are going to be consumed with that. So we want to absolutely commit to that because we know that it would be kind of madness thinking of, do we want to work somewhere else? Do we, have we got any grand plans? Of course there are plans we have uh, long-term and in the background, but right at this stage, COVID the COVID area is so serious in terms of its impact that our commitment is to make sure that we're able to support the kids in the ways that they need during this time. And like you said, there've been so many different ways of challenge in a way that have hit over the last year, you know, any one of them on their own would be, you know, hard enough, but, you know, and, and again, that thing of going, okay, we, we need to really focus in our efforts here. Um, Yeah. So I guess, for someone listening to this and they're thinking, you know, one, you know, that there is a group of people I'd like to support. I'd like to set up my own charity or do something, you know, to support others or, you know, that there's something that's been going back to your original comment about in a way how you were looking advent- for adventure when, <laughs> when you first headed out there. Um, what would be your one piece of advice to give someone who wants to get started on an adventure of their own? My one piece of advice to someone who wanted to get started on their own adventure is to uh, firstly see what's out there already um, to make sure that uh, when I started the programs, it was a really difficult time in South Africa and it it was, it was an extraordinary time. And if, um, if I was doing it now, I'd look at what local initiatives were in place that I could support rather than starting something anew. Uh, Not least of all because times have changed, but also because essentially Local people have the indigenous knowledge to be able to do these things the best. Um, we're really, I mean, I'm a, an English guy running a program in South Africa and Mozambique. So to compensate for that, we have incredible local leadership. So I don't do the day-to-day running of the South Africa and the Mozambique program because essentially we've got local South Africans who are just excellent and local Mozambiques who are excellent at doing that. So yes, firstly, definitely look at what's out there already and how can you support. Uh, And then just to surround yourself um, with people who can be who are supportive and and uh and know what they're doing because things can get dangerous i mean i do look back sometimes and wonder 
at some of the things that I did out of absolute naivety, uh, how I kind of got away with it in, uh, safely. Um, you know, there were some really hair-raising moments over the years. Um, I mean, I, I remember during the height of tensions um, but in about 92, walking, trying to find this Street Kids project in, in a township in South Africa. And it, it just out of total naivety, I just walked into the township on my own. And at the time, um, that was a very, very dangerous thing to do because of the, the history, not because the people were horrible, just because mm. of the history of apartheid. And I walked in and as I was walking in, there was a lot of interest and a couple of guys came and said, hey, you know, how are you doing? What are you doing? And then one guy said, oh, I'm going to walk with you. You know, they obviously realized that it was dangerous and and that is nuts. You know, no one should do that, you know, at least those type of risks are, are actually unnecessary because things can go wrong. So I would say, you know, um, just make sure that you're surrounded by people who, who really know the local scenario and so that you're in a supported and safe situation. No, that's such good advice. And yeah, I can similarly think of things that I probably did in my teens and 20s that looking back, thank God my parents probably didn't know about them. But, <laughs> but yeah, like you said, you know, it's that thing of, an element of naivety or sort of, you know, that, what's the word? That sort of being prepared just to give it a go, I think, does help you get you started, particularly, obviously, given your context. Um, yeah, getting getting good people. And I think that's something also that's really struck me about your program is actually the, the, the local involvement that the people on the ground who are running the program and involved in it, you know, that's very much at the forefront of everything you do. Um, and, you know, has obviously been part of the reason why it's been such a success and has been owned in that way, you know, at, at a ground level too. Um, so thank you so much for your time. And I, I appreciate for you making the time this evening as well, because I know it's not been without its challenges on its own. Um, if people want to find out more about the program, about the charity, where can they go? Uh, two places, uh, particularly Instagram, Surfers Not Street Children and then our website surfnotstreets.org um, and if you go on there um, and if they want to get sort of our newsletters uh, which are quite informative and not not too frequent so they're kind of not annoying uh, i know what that's like um, then they can just sign up there fantastic and i know you've been running a recent campaign as well all around following on for the durban riots and that side of things as well so, yeah, yeah that's really right yeah, our most recent campaign after the riots um, is is a continued campaign because it's kind of around the what we were doing before the riots mm. as well, which was the response to COVID. So that's on our on the website and on Instagram as well. Brilliant. I'll make sure I send I'll share all of those links in the show notes as well, so people can go and. But yeah, really encourage you to, everyone to go and check out the work that that Tom and his team are doing because it really is phenomenal and particularly, you know, in such challenging circumstances at the moment. Tom, thank you so much. That's been absolutely amazing. I really oh, appreciate thanks so much. your time. Well, I appreciate it too. So thank you. That's great. Thanks so much again. Bye. So a huge thank you to Tom for coming on the show and for sharing his story, the story of Surfers Not Street Children, and for sharing his insight and his experience over the last 20 odd years of, of running the charity. I want to pick up on a theme this week, which isn't something that we necessarily talked about as part of the, the show today, but which is something that really struck me as, uh, as part of the conversation, which is around commitment. And I think partly why it struck me is because, like I said, you know, 
Tom has has been doing the work that he's been doing for for really quite a considerable length of time. And through that, as he said, you know, there, there have been some really difficult moments and really difficult times, um, which he's had to work through. That he's had, that he and his team have had to find ways to navigate, to move around, to move through, to keep going. And I think part of that is that I think there can be a quite a dominant narrative nowadays that success or achievement or or making things happen sort of happens instantaneously. You know, we have an idea and then we do it and it either works or it doesn't work. Um, And I think what Tom's story really illustrates is actually the power of commitment, of keeping on going, of finding a way through, but also that we don't always know when we start out, things don't necessarily look like they do further down the line, that that Tom started out with one idea and it progressed to another and that the surfing came in as part of that journey, but further down the line. And I think sometimes the thing that can stop us with setting out on an adventure or taking on a new challenge or or trying something new is this feeling that it's only worth something or its own, its merit is in whether it lands the next day, the next week, the next month, whether it gains instant traction. But the reality is, is that that adventure might morph, it might change, it might follow a different path. Um, but we will only know that if we commit to it, if we're, we're prepared to go with those highs, with those lows, with, with those moments when we really haven't got a clue what we're doing, but somehow find the resources or the, or the energy or the support to, to, to keep going and, uh, and try to navigate through and be able to sit with that, that not knowing too. Um, so that's where I'd like to leave it this week. I hope in some way that inspires you, whatever adventure you have in your own mind or adventure that you're currently on, that even when things get hard, that doesn't mean that it's not working. It doesn't mean, and that's not saying that there isn't sometimes a time to step away um, and and to recognize when it's time to move on from things, but that it's not always clear cut. Um, and I think by knowing that we can allow ourselves that time for the for the murkiness, for the not knowing, for the lack of instant validation um, or knowledge that this is the right thing to do. Anyway, I'd love to know what you think. Please do reach out, get in touch. You can find me at Resilience at Work on Instagram. You can find me at resiliencework.co.uk. That's my website. Um, You can join us in the Facebook group, the Everyday Adventure Club, um, or get in touch via LinkedIn. You can find me, Nikki Bass. And I would love to hear from you. Otherwise, next week, we've got a bit of a break um, because I'm going on half term and and it's very difficult to record it or or to navigate that around, around kids wanting to jump in the sea. So I am away for a week. Um, but I will have a short bonus episode for you. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, and otherwise I will be back with another fantastic episode for season four, the following week. So at the end of October, um, and I really look forward to seeing you again then take care. Bye.